1 Samuel chapter 15 this evening. You'll recall last week we had a, a great Bible study kind of overviewing the faith of Jonathan, a mighty man of God. And if you were ranking underrated Bible characters, Jonathan would have to be near the top of that list. Just an amazing man of courage and a man of faith. Now we come to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And the Bible says, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now verse number 2 is describing something that took place over 400 years ago. As Moses brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, they were weak, they were famished, and in just about two chapters, God is beginning to teach them to walk by faith. Though they've seen the great plagues and the deliverance from Egypt, God is teaching them through giving them water when they need it, giving them food when they beg for it. God is trying to go through the growing pains and gain growing pains, and teach this people how to follow Him in faith. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, just a short ways out of Egypt, as the uh, children of Israel wander through the wilderness of uh, Sin, or Sinai, as they come through that place, the Bible says, and Amalek met them to battle. Imagine coming out of Egypt, the state of the children of Israel. We know they are formally trained in building, in construction, contributing to the great pyramids we even see today. But as far as war, they have no experience. They have no weaponry to speak of. Really, all that they have to their name is the things that God has blessed them with as they came out of Egypt. Now, the Amaleks, uh, or King Amalek and the Amalekite people are a nomadic people. The, the thing about nomadic people that is helpful to understand is they travel as they need resource. They pitch their tent when they find a place that can supply their demands for living for a while. But when they use up that resource, they go somewhere else. That designates them as nomadic. Uh, when they, uh, a, a, another people might establish a colony or set up a village or a city. And from there, they would plant and they would kind of sort of produce what the land can produce for them, their own resources. Nomadic people don't do that. They go from place to place, and they only live, in a sense, day to day. Now, here's what Amalek did. Being a nomadic people, he saw a wonderful opportunity to take advantage of a very, very weak group of people. Coming out of the land of Egypt with no weapons to their name, just the spoil of Egypt around their wrists and around their necks and, and, and the blessings that God has given them. And now Amalek says, this is like taking candy from a baby. In fact, if you look a little bit in Deuteronomy chapter 25, you don't have to turn there. This is the particular reason why God was so infuriated by this action. Deuteronomy 25, verse 18. How he met thee by the way, speaking of Amalek, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, 
when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. They were trying to take advantage of the weakness of God's people. And because of this, God became very wrathful towards the Amalekites. In fact, you'll recall the battle where Moses stands on the hilltop with his hands uplifted. I actually believe it was much like this, with the rod of God at the, uh, being held high above the battlefield. If his arms ever fell, then they would begin to lose the battle. If his arms were raised up high, they would win the battle. And Aaron gets a rock, and Hur gets a rock, and they establish themselves as supports for Moses. And as long as that rod stayed up in the air, then they won. There, that was the battle against Amalek. And it was God who gave them the battle, or gave them the victory, there on that day. Because of that, uh, uh, Moses decides to build an altar and call the place Jehovah Nisai. That word means, the Lord is our banner. Like banners that are often carried into battle of kingdoms. They have all the soldiers behind the banner leading them to battle. The idea here is, and Moses is saying, God was our banner this day. He stood high upon the hilltop and it was the rod of God in my hands that we fought for and prospered under. When the Bible describes all of these events, it concludes in Exodus chapter 17 and says this, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord decides to basically wage a perpetual war against the Amaleks or against King Amalek and against the Amalekite people for generation to generation. Now it's one thing to realize that God remembers 400 years later, God's still remembering. Which brings us to the wonder that God would choose to forget. You with me? You see where I'm going? It's, it, it makes sense that God would remember. Because God is an omniscient God. He knows all. He sees all. He is everywhere at all times. So there's nothing you've ever done or ever said or, or ever uh, uh, been involved with that God was not aware of. Yet there are some things that God says, I being omniscient and I being God who knows everything, I will choose to forget it for your sake. It's one thing that he remembers. It's a much greater thing that he chooses to forget. What are the things that he chooses to forget? Well, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12 says, For I will be merciful, merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Isaiah 43 verse 25, he says, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. Micah chapter 7 verse 19 says, He will turn again, he will have compassion upon us, he will subdue our iniquities, and thou will cast them into the, uh, all their sins into the depths of the sea. Can you say, can you realize the wonder tonight? It is no wonder that God would remember someone's sin, it is a great wonder that he would choose to forget someone's sin. God has chosen for the purpose of reconciliation. And through the payment of Jesus Christ shed blood on the cross to choose to forget the sins of those of us who are His children. What a blessing that is. Now we come to verse number uh, 3. As the Bible goes on to say, Now go 
and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now the word utterly destroy here, that same Hebrew word is used seven different times in our chapter alone. And it really speaks to total destruction, but really it speaks of a judgment of God to total destruction. Destruction, And there have been those uh, advocates of Scripture, or uh, uh, opponents of Scripture, I should say, that look at passages like this and say, well, that's just terrible that God would do that. Uh, but really, uh, for Bible believers, we understand, number one, it's never wise to really question God. I, I, I don't think there's any real wisdom in that. I am not in the management part, department of heaven. That may surprise you, but I am not serving in a supervisor role or a managerial position so managers don't question the one who's in charge. Uh, but, but what I also want you to remember is when God rained down fire uh, on Sodom and Gomorrah, would not the same individuals have been destroyed that are mentioned here in terms of the Amal- Amalekites? Certainly. When uh, God sends plagues against Egypt, would not have all the very same individuals that are listed here be included in that type of judgment? Certainly. God chooses to send judgment by hellfire one day, by plagues by another day, and in this case, He uses the instrument of His people to execute judgment upon the unrighteous. Years ago, uh, there was an, an establishment that decided to set up shop here in Joshua, Texas. As you know, for years, Johnson County was a dry county, but when that change occurred... Uh, there was a, 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 an establishment, they wanted to be called the Rene, Renegade Bar and Saloon. I asked them where they found that in the King James Version, the Renegade, but it wasn't in there. Uh, and so we caught wind of this as a church, and our church went down to the city hall the very day that they were to uh, be voted on and so forth. We took, uh, I don't know, I'd say 60 or 70 people down to city hall. It only holds about 30, and we... we flooded the entire crowd, and when they began to take input for the day, uh, there were people that got up, and preacher got up, and with three sweet points in a poem, he preached to them a, a little message on our stance on liquor within our community. And you say, well, that's just mean. Or maybe sometimes God still uses His people to take a stance for righteousness. After all, aren't we called to be salt and light? Salt that doesn't affect anything has entirely lost its savor. Light that never turns on doesn't illuminate anything. And so God uses His people to stand up for righteousness. And and certainly when we have the opportunity, we ought to stand up for righteousness in our community. The idea here is utter destruction. Uh, Now, uh, as we move forward, far too often I want you to see... The, the word is clear. There is no confusion. Samuel says to Saul, utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Is there any confusion as what God's expectation is? Because in a moment we're going to get to a place where Saul disobeys the Lord. And based upon his reaction, you would assume something broke down in communication. Years ago, there was a movie called Cool Hand Luke. I have no idea what it's rated, so please, if it's not a good rating, forgive me. But in the movie, uh, Cool Hand Luke 
says this, what we have here is a failure to communicate. A misunderstanding. I want to be clear tonight, there is no misunderstanding here. The word of the Lord is very direct through Samuel to Saul what God's expectation was. Far too often, disobedience in the lives of Christians is not the result of a lack of clarity on God's part. Rarely is sin produced in our life because we simply do not know better. Most of the time, God has clearly revealed in His Word what is right and what is wrong. God doesn't do well operating in gray areas. It's really what we have to understand is, almost, well, not almost, all of our sin is volitional. We engage it by choice. We make the decision consciously to engage in sin. And the Bible is given to us so that we can avoid that type of decision-making process. The Bible says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. James chapter 1 verse 21, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. What is God's word primarily given to us for? I think number one, so that we might know how God plans to save us. And number two, how God plans to sanctify us. It helps us avoid these sin uh, issues. And by the way, just rewind. No chance we're getting through tonight's sermon. What a blessing that clock up there on the wall is. What a blessing. Rewind all the way back to Adam and Eve. What did, uh, what did uh, Satan have Eve questioning? The very word of the Lord. What did he say? Yea, hath God said. What exactly did he say? What were his words? I want you to think about what he said, and then I'm going to twist it, manipulate it, and understand it how I want to. Rarely is sin in our lives the product of a lack of understanding. God's Word is profitable to us. And if we'll open up our hearts and open up this Bible, we'll find it will direct our paths. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know what lamps and lights do? They illuminate trip, uh, trip hazards. They reveal stumbling blocks. They even reveal, like the other night when I was walking at our ranch and I had my cell phone light on, they reveal when a snake crosses my pathway. You know the sound I make? This is your real manly pastor. <laughs> that was the sound I made. Very, very manly, I know. But, but light reveals, and we have to be careful when we get away from opening God's book, it will not be long until we're, we're, we're making decisions and, and that, that go against His Word. And so... God's Word is pretty clear. In fact, John Bunyan wrote a handwritten note in the front of his Bible. John Bunyan, the, the author of the great uh, Christian book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, you know what that note said? He said, uh, sin, or either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And we must understand that the, the failure on Saul's part now is not going to be because he didn't understand. Because God wasn't clear enough. This is a volitional choice to rebel against God. Verse number 3. In my notes, that should have taken three minutes. That felt more like 13 minutes, but that's just how it goes. Verse 3. 
Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, and ox and sheep and camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, uh, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. Now, if you've been at our, our, our weekly Bible study and our Wednesday night services for any length of time, you realize there is a great difference between the number we just read and the one we have been reading. You remember it was just two chapters ago where Paul, uh, Saul... Yeah, Paul's not in the Old Testament, just so we're clear. It's Saul. Uh, but, but Saul establishes the first professional army. Do you remember how many soldiers he had? He had 3,000. 2,000 under his command. 1,000 under his son Jonathan's command. Now something has happened to where now we're at 210,000 soldiers. 200,000 footmen and 10,000 from Judah. What happened? Well, 25 years happened. It's funny, you read it like it's just the next day, but uh, this is a long time after. In fact, if you go back to the end of chapter 14, what does the uh, chapter close with? And there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. There has been a high-intensity recruitment over the last 25 years that has produced the evolution of an army that went from 3,000 to now some 210,000 people. Now, verse number 5, the Bible says, Then Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley, and Saul said unto the Kenites... Now, we don't have time to go into it, but the Kenites seem to be a people that often abide with other nations. Uh, They... uh, uh, are often seen even with the children of Israel. In fact, Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. Uh, and you see them sometimes with the children of Israel. And they seem to be a very divided people, one being with this nationality of uh, people and another group with this nationality. But, but Saul comes to them and he says, Go to part, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites uh, departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah uh, until thou comest to Shur, that is, over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the auction, and of the fatlings, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refused, that they destroyed utterly. Again, there was no lack of clarity. It wasn't that God was uh, uh, ambiguous when He began to describe what He wanted. He said, I want you to go utterly destroy everything. And He listed everything. Just destroy it all. Uh, Why did God take such a personal stance on this? Because... I believe this, they were not to glory in the execution of God's judgment. It was God that said 400 years prior, I am going to judge the Amalekites. And now uh, God doesn't want His people running down with smiles on their faces waiting to slay an enemy nation. This is God's judgment, and it was to be very solemn. And and God says, you're not to profit from this. This is not for your benefit. This is not for my benefit. You know why? Because God doesn't take pleasure in wrath. God doesn't take pleasure in executing vengeance. 
God is a God of uh, mercy and of grace and long-suffering. 400 years of long-suffering, I might add. And I believe if at any point they had repented, God would have forgiven them. Now God says, the day has come, the doorbell has rung, and now it's time to execute judgment. And He says, nation of Israel, don't take a thing. This is my bidding you are doing. You are not to profit from it. And now they spare many of the things that God told them to destroy. Verse number 10, Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he is turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments, and it grieved Saul, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Now verse 11 uh, somewhat brings forth a fairly controversial topic within the scope of theology. It is how can God repent? How can God regret what He has done? I will say this, God cannot. God does not regret what He has done. God knew what would be done, and this doesn't catch God off guard. So what we find is, if you wanted a theological term to describe what's taking place in verse 11, uh, we covered it in our Vision Elective series, but it is what is called an anthropomorphism. That is, attributing to God human characteristics for the purpose that we might be able to understand a characteristic or an attribute of a sovereign God. You say, well, that was a mouthful. I know, I studied all afternoon to say that one sentence. What it means is, God does not have hands. Okay, here's an example of it. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So God doesn't have hands. Uh, God does not have wings. But the Bible uses terminology that, uh, that, that, that God has hands and that things are held in His hands. And as the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, and He turneth it whithersoever, uh, whithersoever. As the rivers of water, whithersoever He will. God does not have actual, literal hands But the Bible uses that terminology to indicate to us an attribute or a characteristic of God. Uh, And the, the Lord does not have eyes. But the Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. So those are helpful anthropomorphisms, human characteristics attributed to God so that we might understand something about Him. God does not repent. But what is similar to what we might deem repentance is the emotional burden he is feeling here in this passage. You say, okay, well, if you're going to make that claim, why don't we prove it? All right, so if we go down to, I believe, verse 29, verse 29, we'll see that the Lord cannot repent. And also, the strength of Israel. You notice that word there, strength, is capitalized? The strength of Israel. This is a proper name of God. This is the strength of Israel is God. And also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent. For he is not a man that he should repent. Repentance is something that men do, not something that God does. In fact, to further this point even more, Malachi chapter 3 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. 
Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that He should lie, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. So God does not repent, but the emotional state of God in this moment is that of real sorrow over the state of Saul as king. To help you understand this even more, not only do you see God being described as repenting in verse 11, it gives us a reflection of what repentance, a similar repentance, looks like in the lives of humans just a few words later. Notice what it says. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night long. That's a similar state. Samuel, both the Lord and Samuel knew back in chapter 13 that Saul would not be king forever. You understand that, right? God had already removed the kingdom from Saul. He had already rent it out of his hand. So, so how do we get to this place where now Saul, uh, Samuel's crying over it and the Lord's repenting over it? Because they are both burdened at the state of the king, how he's gotten to this point in life. By the way, the Bible says that we as God's children, possessed by the Spirit of God, can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can absolutely grieve the Holy Spirit. It repenteth God every time you sin. doesn't repent Him that He saved you or that His blood saved you or forgave you, but it saddens Him and sorrows Him. And so that helps us understand a fairly controversial topic within the scope of theological study. In verse number 12, And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place and is gone about and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. Now, this is a, a horrible thing what's said in verse number 12. He set him up a place, that Hebrew word place. It means many things, but it seems to indicate in this passage that, uh, that Saul has set up a monument. A place to remember this day. But what's really bad is this is not like the day when the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River and they came to the other side and they said, let's everybody grab a stone and we're going to set 12 stones up and we're going to make a mon monument to the Lord that when our sons ask, what, what mean ye these stones? We're going to tell them about this wonderful day of God bringing His people across. This is not like that because the Bible is very clear. Verse 12, He, that is Saul, set him... That is Saul up a place. Who is this commemorative memorial for? Saul. Nothing to do with the Lord. This is for Saul. This is the state of the great king. I kind of like to alliterate things. I, I think this is Saul's diva moment. He's a diva, he wants recognition. No wonder it grieved his heart when people said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. What do you mean? Somebody's better than me? Oh no, they can't be better than me. He's a diva. He's prideful. He's arrogant. He looks to the, uh, the encouragement and the, the glory that can be attained from men. That's what fills his heart with joy. He's a diva. He set him up a place, and the Bible goes on to describe, verse number 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Eh, really? Eh, are you sure? How, how are you at this place where you have so deceived yourself that you think you have 
uh, done what the Lord wanted you to. In verse 14, and Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear, which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. Notice, I've underlined it because of the study. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Are you serious? This guy is the best politician in Scripture. Have you ever noticed how a politician can come into office, dismiss the status of the economy as if the failure of the last president caused all this, but then when it gets good, they take credit for it? Well, you've been in office eight years, yeah, but we're really dealing with the problems of that last guy. This is political talk. He says, the people brought the sheep and the oxen, They have spared the things, but we destroyed. They messed up. We, that included me, did what the Lord wanted. He's an absolute politician. Now, I think if you were alliterating this, Saul is now not only a diva, but he's dismissive of of his own responsibility in the actions that have taken place. He dismisses it as if it's not his fault. Have you ever noticed that is human nature, though? This is all, I, I look at the world very weird, I know, I think, I, I think oddly, I am very analytical and I overanalyze things. The thing that God has gifted me with is being able to look at a passage of scripture and kind of like pick every little uh, fragment of meat off of bones, but, but that kind of hurts me in life sometimes. I've wondered this as this analytical approach to real life. I wonder what I look like to other people. Now, don't let this catch you off guard. What I mean is, God created me to only see you without the assistance of something or someone else, I am unable to see myself. I wake up every morning and I see others. I see my wife and I see my children. Usually my children too early and too loud, but that's just at my home. But isn't it odd that God has created us with vision, but the vision He's given us only allows us to perceive others? It's not until I go into the bathroom in the morning and I look into the reflection of my mirror that I am able to see myself. So without the assistance of a device, of something external from me, I cannot see myself. Unless I surround myself with a wife that has the courage to be like, Babe, babe, you got something in your teeth. Surround yourself with people that will tell you you got something in your teeth. That's what I'm saying. But without the assistance of something else or someone else, I can't, I can't correct what's wrong. You know, that's why the Bible was given to us. The Bible calls itself the perfect law of liberty, and it compares itself to a mirror. That's why your relationship with God's Word is so vitally important in your daily life. Because the moment you forget to open this book, you fail to see yourself in the reflection of God's Word. You need it. Because without this book showing you what manner of man you truly are, you won't know what, what, you won't know what God is wanting to fix in your life. No wonder people are totally oblivious to what God's doing in this world and in their life. They have no relationship with His Word. 
The depth of most Christians' Christianity stops on Sunday afternoon. And as soon as the service is ended, usually not even to the point where we're actually dismissed, it's just when the invitation instruments start playing, people lean over and say, Honey, where are we going to go eat? And that is the depth of most people's relationship with God's Word. Friend, you need a relationship with His Word every day so that you can correct the flaws and the errors of your image every day. Unless you surround yourself with godly people that will help you and say, you know what? Things aren't going well for you spiritually. Surround yourself with people that will tell you you have something in your teeth. Surround yourself with people that will say, you know what? I've been seeing some things lately that are concerning to me. You say, I don't want people like that all judgy in my life. Boy, I'd rather have a friend that will wound me because faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I want my friends to help me and encourage me to be like the Lord Himself. I want that for my life. And so, we must see this. Why has Saul devolved to the point where he's able to say, though he has not obeyed the word of the Lord, he's able to look at Samuel and be like, I did exactly what God wanted. How was he so deceived? Because he forgot the word of the Lord. And his relationship with the word of the Lord was fairly uh, uh, liberal. He just changed it whatever he wanted it to be. And, and we'll, we'll go into this a little bit further. Uh, verse number uh, uh, 15, let's see if that's about where we are. Yeah, 16. Then Samuel said unto Saul, stay. That is the Bible way of saying, be quiet. I'm tired of hearing your political rhetoric. I don't want it anymore. It is exhausting. It is nauseating that you think you could actually have obeyed the Lord. When I hear the lowing of the animals, I hear the bleeding of the sheep. Saul, shut your mouth. Stay. That's what you ought to tell your children. Stay. Peace be still. Biblical terminology. Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on, as if God's man needed his permission to speak. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? That statement, when thou wast little in thine own sight, ought to reveal for us what has gotten, what has taken place in Saul's life that has now allowed him to dismiss scriptural precedent, to dismiss the obligation to obey the Lord. What has happened? Pride. Pride. His spirit has been lifted up in pride. Because of that, God will now humble him. You know, it's the humble that are exalted. It is the prideful that are abased. Crazy, but, you know, it was uh, Samson thought that the will of the Lord was in Delilah's lap. He had so deceived himself. He was so proud. He had won so many contests that now it was okay to be where he was. Surely enough, his pride was his downfall. And what happened to him in the Philistian temple was just a picture of what had already happened to him spiritually. His eyes plucked out and he's grinding at the mill. Look, he had been spiritually blind for some time. And he had already been serving the passions of his own flesh for some time. That was just the result of what had already taken place. 
pride lifts us up. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says about Satan himself that he was made perfect in wisdom. A, a creature of perfect beauty, full of wisdom. And then in, in just in Ezekiel, just five verses later, it says, Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. You know what that means? Your beauty and your pride has lifted you up and the knowledge that you had before has been corrupted. It's been broken. And that which you knew right well now has you thinking evil. Now has you doing evil. Your beauty and your pride has lifted your spirit up. And friend, you rest assured, whenever pride begins to take place in your heart, it will not be long before you will be humbled by God. Humility is a pleasing attribute in God's eyes. Meekness is a wonderful thing in the life of a Christian. We must reject pride because pride is desperately deceitful. And it gives us a false indicator of where we truly are in the Christian life. Verse number 17 Over verse 18, And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, based upon Samuel's own admission here, he believes the reason that they brought the best spoil and destroyed the worst was pure covetousness. You flew upon the spoil. That's what you wanted. You destroyed that which was worth nothing and you brought out the best, not to sacrifice to the Lord, not to be pleasing to Him, but this is Samuel's opinion, thou didst fly upon the spoil. You know what spoil does? If if spoil becomes the pursuit of the Christian life, spoil maketh itself wings and flies off. That is the pursuit of worldly goods. Did you know that that verse that says that riches maketh itself wings and flieth, uh, flieth away, that is prophetic? Did you know that your dollar bill literally has an eagle with outstretched wings on it? In 1918, the first thousand dollar bill was minted. On the back of it, the, there's a giant picture of an eagle with wings outspread. You know what that tells me? Thousand uh, dollar bills easily get up and fly off. If, if your pursuit in life is to get money, rest assured, that man that pursues that covetous desire to get will be pierced through with many sorrows. You say, what does that mean? It means that you will be met with disappointment because money will never fulfill and the things that money can't buy you'll miss out on. Just even last week, I think it was Jimmy Johnson that sat at the Hall of Fame ceremony and they asked him about what it was to, you know, he was giving his speech. He looked down and he said about his two boys that both played football. He looked down and he said, I never watched a single down they ever played. You know how many downs of football that man has seen, but he never saw his own sons play football? Yeah, don't miss out on your kid's life pursuing things that secure the life your kids are living. Don't miss out on what your kids are going through just so you can get a little bit more money. That man will be pierced through with many sorrows. So we find that Samuel's opinion was that they had done this simply for the pursuit of the spoil. Uh, Verse number 
20, And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. This again? Didn't we just cover this? Didn't I just tell you I didn't want to hear this anymore? He is absolutely deceived about the state of his obedience. I do believe there is something to be discussed here. It will be the last thing. We'll have to close. There's just no way we can go any longer. About two weeks ago, my daughter Bailey had gotten into some trouble. Now, at my home, we discipline. We do not spank often. I would guess we probably spank our kids maybe two times in a given week. And that's not all of our kids. It's just two isolated events. We don't punish much. But every time we punish, we try to make sure that compassion and mercy are traits that also follow discipline. Uh, I can get into that philosophy later, but it's certainly learned from the Lord. I told Bailey she was in trouble. She wasn't getting a spanking for it, but I said, Bailey, I need you to go to your room and I need you to get on your bed. And I do not want you to move from your bed. If you move from your bed, I will give you a spanking and you'll be in big trouble. Some time passes, not much, maybe 10 minutes or so. And I go into Bailey's room to find her up and about. And I said, in the meanest voice I could, Bailey, what are you doing? And she looked at me with all the fear and anxiety that the world had to offer her at that moment. And she said, Daddy, I'm cleaning my room. And I said, come in here, Bailey. On the way to the chair where I was going to give Bailey a spanking, I realized that Bailey was learning something. I think, uh, this is the thought that went through my mind. In Bailey's mind, obedience, that being staying on the bed. That was the clear commandment I gave her, stay on the bed. But in Bailey's mind, doing a favor or pleasing daddy would somehow atone for the sin of her past. You with me? She thought that if she could get up and clean her room, she could impress me, and thereby I would forgive her, and Daddy would be happy with her. And so she was facing this dilemma, obedience or sacrifice. Right? I brought Bailey back to the chair and I began to ask her questions about what she had done and the decision-making process that led to her getting out of her bed. She began to explain to me that she thought that if she cleaned her room, it would make me happy. I taught her in that moment the very lesson that Saul should have learned here. Obedience is always more vital than sacrifice. Obeying clear commandments is always better than trying to please Daddy. In fact, we'll read quickly verse 22. And Samuel said, this is the point he's making, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. By the way, that word witchcraft there is divination. That is foreshadowing what will eventually be Saul's ultimate demise, going to the witch at Endor and interceding to speak to Samuel. This this is rebellion here will conceive 
and bring forth the day when he's literally seeking out witchcraft to get an answer from God. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as the sin of iniquity. is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Here's the lesson Samuel is trying to tell Saul. Saul, obeying the Lord was always better than sacrificing to him. And you say, well, I can't believe God put him in this dilemma. God did not put him in this dilemma. God gave him a clear commandment. What Saul was trying to do was man-conceived worship. I think God would like this. I'm going to go out of my way and do something nice for God. God said, the nicest thing you can do for me is obey me. Destroy everything. Utterly destroy it. Because that's what I want. That's my clear command. By the way, there is never a time when God's Word conflicts with itself. God's Word is clear. It is fully available for us to understand. And any time we might come into the very rare occasion where there is a sort of gray area, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that then we have the Holy Spirit that can guide us into truth. So according to God's Word, there's never a time when God's Word will ask you to do something and at another time it's asking you to do another thing. There will never be that conflict. But Saul put himself in that conflict. Because he thought God would rather be worshipped on the basis of his worship than on what God had told him to do. God desires obedience. You know, there are many factors that separated King David from King Saul, but I believe this to be one of the greatest. At the end of David's psalm, or Psalm 51, you know what he says? For thou desirest not sacrifice else would I give it. This is after he sinned with Bathsheba. This is after he's killed one of the greatest men in all his kingdom, Uriah. Thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. David had messed up. Saul had messed up. One of them now is trying to save face before the people. Read the rest of the chapter. You'll find that every action from this point on, Saul is trying to publicly save face. He invites Samuel to go with him and say, Samuel, come worship with me because the people need to see a united front. Samuel says, I'm not going to come with you today. He says, yeah, but Samuel, I really need you to honor me in front of the people. And Samuel says, okay, I'll do that. Just to spare some sort of civil war, some division amongst the kingdom. But it didn't spare Saul. And then eventually, Saul will, or Samuel will be walking away. Saul will grab his robe, and the robe will tear, and he will be holding on to a fragment of Saul's, uh, Samuel's robe. You know what Samuel will say? As you have rent this garment, the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of your hand. You know why? Because just like he held too, highly, too tightly to that garment the rest of Saul's reign will be characterized by clasping onto the few, futile years of his reign. By the way, it was never his reign to secure. It was always God's grace that gave it to him in the first place. A humble man in the beginning, a prideful man in his end. Clinging and grasping to that last little bit of authority and influence. And and now he holds to that little useless piece of cloth, no larger than a hanky, saying, yeah, but look at who I am. Look at what I've got to do for the Lord. 
Obedience is always the requirement of the Christian life. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey.